I'm Matthew George, and this is Digging into Deutsch, the podcast where we'll be unearthing the personal stories of the people right here at our agency. This ain't going to be something you'll see or hear on Ad Age or one of those industry emails or social posts we're pummeled with each day. On this podcast, we're going to zero in on the person versus the professional. That said, we'll try to give you a sense of how that person informs the pro, how each person's journey in life and what they're all about really makes them special as a professional. We hope you'll be surprised, we hope you'll be inspired, and we know you're going to have a few laughs along the way. So let's dig into today's episode. My name's uh, Pete Johnson. I'm an executive creative director here. I've been here for three years in June. I'll be here. Okay, that long. Yeah. That doesn't seem that long. No. I just want to kind of go back just into sort of your childhood a little bit. Sure. And, you know, based on some things we talked about before, you know, your grandfather had a pretty interesting life and sort of put your dad on a path during your dad's teens into onto a sort of very unusual path. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. <laughs> well, my, my grandfather was... Um, Son of an immigrant, like Irish immigrants, that I actually recently found out. I'm more Irish than than we realized. Um, through but, genetic testing? Yeah, through 23andMe. Okay. I found out that I'm 77% Irish. Really? And we always thought I was more Swedish. Huh. Like, and so the whole oral history of the Johnson family got it totally wrong. Really? <laughs> so I was, I was looking for a curveball, and I got nothing. It was like I was the whitest guy in the world. It was like, you're 77% British Irish. That's really no surprise. I know, a little bit of Scandinavian. And I'm like, I wanted something else. I wanted you know? something. <laughs> something you could talk about. Yeah, I got nothing. I know. Yeah. Um, well, so he he was a, um, a professor of mathematics at Seton Hall. And when the war broke out, he, he joined uh, the Navy. And he became a full commander. Before World War II. Yeah. Yeah. And became a full commander. And he was at Iwo Jima. And he you know, had a pretty decorated um, time in, in the service. And, uh, you know, what basically happened after that was he took a Pentagon job and, you know, he was a big wig down in D.C. And it was a it was an interesting life for him. But I think that he suffered greatly from PTSD, from the war and all mm. those things. And it, it caused a lot of like, you know, strife, I think, you know, at home and with the kids. Yeah. My father and, and being a parent. Yeah. Yeah. And um, my father and he had a, a younger brother and a younger sister. And their their mom, who was also a Navy officer, she was a lieutenant. And they, abroad, overseas, or here, she was or a, both. She was a nurse. She huh. was in the nurse uh, corps or whatever yeah. it was. And they met at Fort Worth, Texas. And they had um, you know family. And then I, I think she died when he was twelve, when my dad was twelve. And my grandfather remarried shortly after, and it was a very kind of abusive, you know, stepmom situation or whatever. And my father ran away from home when he was around. 13 or 14 years old. I'm not sure exactly how the logistics of the runaway worked, but right. the stories that he tells is that he basically got an apartment with a friend of his at like yeah. 15 years old, and they just started from there. And where is he now? He's He lives in Long Island. No, but I mean, I'm sorry, at that point. Oh, sorry. He's in Queens. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So he's living in Queens. And mm -hmm. so the stepmom sort of exacerbated an already tough situation. Yeah. Yeah. And so he, you know, kind of did his whole thing and... and I think what happened was when he was around 18 years old, he got arrested for something. He, he always says that he was like throwing pies at a supermarket, but I don't really Sounds think it right. was. <laughs> something a little more intense. Yeah. And so, and so he a got a bit more street cred. He got a, um, you know, when he went in front of the judge, they gave him the opportunity to go into the military or to go to jail. And his father showed up, you know, being the big wig that he was and kind of made, made it so that he was going to the military. So he went to the Air Force and then got an honorable discharge from the Air Force. And then <laughs> the story goes that, you know, dad doesn't really have a... Uh, <laughs> like you really don't know where the story goes for a couple of years after that. So wait a minute. So he's in the Air Force, right. but where? Like where is he physically? He was in okay. Texas in the okay. Air Force. Yeah. So he served down in like yeah. an air base down yeah. there. Yeah. But never served uh, overseas no, or in a no. war zone. Or it was in like the that. middle of the Vietnam conflict. Okay. And, yeah. And and what did he do in the Air Force? Nothing. He was in basic training for about like I think it was like three or four months. And right. And he got this honorable discharge. So kind of out of nowhere gets his honorable discharge yeah and then there's like this mysterious period kind of yeah like i mean he he kind of disappears a little bit off of the the narrative map for a while yeah and then shows up um he reappears reappears in new york and he's sort of doing engineering work you know so he 
But he runs away. Mm -hmm. Does he graduate from high school? I believe he got a GED, yeah. Okay, but then all of a sudden he ends up with an engineering degree. Well, I don't think he has a degree. He's just working in engineering. Okay, got it. Yeah. And so, you know, he meets my mom, and then all of a sudden, you know, they start having a family, and we live in Bermuda. And he's de- he's designing power plants in Bermuda. Now, how did he end up in Bermuda? He got a job with, um, he was like a boiler watch technician when okay. he first started out. And then it just sort of escalated that they were like, oh, you're really good at this. And then like you're really good at the next thing. And you're really good at the next thing. And so he started becoming like a project manager designing power plants. Okay. They need boilers in Bermuda? That sounds a little suspect, <laughs> if you don't mind me saying. <laughs> well, everyone needs a boiler. <laughs> That's a clue right there. Um, so... And your mom, if I remember right, I think you told me... She's a nurse. Yeah, nurse. But wasn't she an orphan? I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, kind of. I mean, it's like the loose uh, term of it. So her dad died when she was three, and then her mom died when she was 16. So she basically was on her own at the same time my dad was on his own. Um, Mm -hmm. And they met each other when my dad was working at a hospital in Queens, and she was a nurse at the hospital in Queens, and they kind of came together there. So they were in Bermuda for a while, and then he sort of becomes sounds like it becomes one kind of engineer then another kind of engineer then right. another kind of engineer kind right. of deal yeah and then they come back here yeah we live in long island for a while okay. and then <clears throat> and then um he starts working for general electric as as a startup engineer which is what it power plants okay like, so he goes and helps design and, and implement you know mostly steam turbines and a lot of different types of steam turbine technology so when they build all the infrastructure he involved with that but also he goes and make sure it's all Working right. Yeah, he's in charge. At the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And he's, he's making the dates and doing all that stuff. Okay. And, and then uh, I guess like he got some opportunities and he moved to the Middle East. You know, he kind of, my mom and him decided that it was a good job opportunity and he sort of went to Egypt for a while. Right. And we stayed back in the United States. And if you can imagine back then, it wasn't like, you know, your dad's going off to, you know, a business trip for a while where you can like WhatsApp him anytime or right. whatever. It was like if the satellite's overhead, maybe you can call dad and tell him your report card was good. Right. For like stuff. for like twenty seconds. Yeah, exactly. And so um, you know, he was and then he would come back and forth from Egypt uh to New York, you know, and whatnot. And it, it became a kind of a strain. Yeah. I think on the family. And so we decided, or he decided, my mom decided, that we should move over to the Middle East. And so we went over to Egypt. And um, where in Egypt? Um originally it was well, it was this place called Abu Sultan, right. which is uh, about a mile or two miles south of like a port city called Ismailia, and it's on the eastern um, side of Egypt, right at the mouth of the Suez Canal. So the Suez Canal like goes all the way up from the Red Sea, but there's a series of lakes yeah. that uh, sort of are considered the Suez Canal. But then the canal, the construction itself, starts around where Ismailia is. We were on those lakes. God, you know more way, way more geography than most people, right there. Seriously. <laughs> well, that's probably the extent of it. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very regionalized knowledge. Yeah. I think I'd like to go back home and take it easy. There's a woman that I'd like to get to know. I live in there. So you're there, and now what kind of place is that? Like you show up. So it was your family shows, and you're how old now? Like I'm like nine, nine, okay, eight so or nine. You, so then you go there, and like, what's like, what's the scene basically? So you know, it's an interesting place. It's um, it was it was in the '80s, right, mid '80s. So American Aid, if you remember, like Ronald Reagan had this whole big uh, initiative, which was called American Aid, and it was for you know allies in the Middle East that would get a lot of sort of money from the United States, and then they were subcontracted out to U.S. like sort of. Companies like General Electric and, you know, whoever, right. Halliburton. Raytheon. <laughs> yeah, all these kinds of guys, you know, yeah. the good guys. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, they, Allegedly. You know, and they went out over there and they would just build infrastructure for, you know, the developing Developed parts. Developing yeah. yeah. And so Egypt at this point, you know, had you know, substantial development in the Nile Valley and the Delta and whatnot. And so, but all along the, the Sahara and like, you know, the Southern Desert and the Suez Canal and all that. It wasn't really developed. So when we got there, there was a lot of mud sort of houses, you know, lots of donkeys in the road, right. a lot of like, you know, agri- agriculture and, you know, people that were living the way that they were living 4,000 years ago. So it's like sustenance part. living, really. There was no electricity. Yeah. And we were, bar- I'll never forget it. Like it was the morning we got there, we were barreling down this road and it was just like, you know, water buffalo everywhere and, you know, farmland and whatever. And then we came up to this general electric compound that had like razor wire and it looked like a prison. And inside of it, they had built these like homes that looked like Levittown. Right. Island, so like know? Levittown behind wait, razor wire. Yeah, basically. in the middle of like the, like nowhere Egypt. And so we walked in there and it was just like this very modern, very sort of up to date kind of like 80s 
uh, community. It had generators and power yeah. and all this stuff. And, you know, it had a soccer field and it had a squash courts and it had like a big bar and cantina and all this kind of stuff. It was actually like a big camp, you know. And how many people live there roughly? I think there was, you know, I mean, there was villas yeah. for the families. Like, and it was mostly Italian um, construction workers and um, American engineers. Okay. And and then there were there was the bachelor hall, which was like all these guys that kind of just were like over there, like, you know, partying and whooping it up. And then there was like the, the family places where we were. Oh, my God. And I God. used to sneak to the bachelor hall, even at like eight what, years old. Because what went like, on over there? Like, what kind of yeah, stuff? They were just all drinking and partying and having a good time. And so I was it was like, fun. Well, they were like fun guys. Yeah, man, that's where the action's at. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got to get over there. But, you know, my mom But there's no a, women. There's just guys. Yeah, just guys. It was yeah. kind of like military Okay. You know, like yeah. it had that, that vibe to it. And there were some situations like when I was first there that was really amazing like i remember i was out on the soccer field playing just kicking the ball around with my sister yeah and all of a sudden you know these bedouin were coming back seasonally from the desert like towards like the lakes and everything and what is that what are those um they're nomadic uh people from like southern egypt you know and they basically travel in camel caravans and you know they bring they go here and there and whatnot but there's back then there's a significant uh amount of them still you know and they were coming back in off the off the desert to go camp for the winter at the lake or the summer i forgot which one it was and they i remember sitting there at the razor wire fence wearing op jams and like you know like totally american right and they're walking by they're looking at me i'm looking at them i'm like holy shit like where am i you know like this is really weird and i remember them coming up to me and speaking to me in arabic and i didn't know what to say to them all between this fence and it was very, it was a culture shock for sure. And, but it was fascinating. And it was like, as for a nine-year-old, and at this time, just mind you, it was also, you know, Indiana Jones was, was, was the thing. Right. And I immediately thought I was Indiana Jones. I'm like, I'm here, you know, like yeah. I need a bullwhip. I, I need right. to find the, the Ark of the Covenant. I, right. <laughs> you know, I like need the was, leather vest. I was, need the whole thing. It was like the best thing ever, you know, like I yeah. couldn't, I, I was so, so excited about being there. So you're there, and I mean, how did your interest start to form? I mean, what, what, like, did you want to, like, did suddenly you just want to be Indiana Jones, or did you want to be something else, American, or something in between? Well, you know, it's, it, it, the funny thing is, it's like, um, my house growing up, my father was really into classical music, he was into reading and writing, and, yeah. you know, all of these very... It's a very cultured, educated yeah, household. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, you know, I mean, it yeah. wasn't like we were all just kind of, you know, going to the Met every night, you yeah. know, the gala or anything, but, like, yeah. there was, you know, there was significant amount of um, stimulus, academic stimulus around, and I just remember reading a lot of stuff when I was a kid, going through my dad's book stacks, yeah. you know, like, going through his records, and sort of just learning about things that we're around, you know, I mean, if my dad was into jazz, I probably would have been like playing jazz with him. But like he was really into like books and, right. and those types of things. And so you know, I started picking up a lot on, on that. And I was reading some pretty heavy stuff like early on, even if I didn't understand it, I was right. trying to understand like it. American classics or classics. In general. Mostly like, you know, he was really into the study of religion. Uh-huh. So he had a lot of like sort of interesting theology stuff around. Yeah. He was very into uh, history. So there's a lot of history stuff around, yeah. but, you know, both world history, American history, that kind of stuff. So, and, and everybody there worked for GE in one, or directly or indirectly, basically. Yeah. Or I for mean, the power plant or GE associated the, contractors. GE was the main, they owned everything, and then they subcontracted down. During your time there on the power plant, your dad goes to work every day like an engineer. Yeah. And was that it? Like, was he, or was he kind of, like, disappearing for, like, other stuff, too? No, he was pretty much there, like, okay. the whole time, you know. I mean, it was weird. We had, like... um I mean, we were we were near an Air Force base, you know, yeah. an Egyptian Air Force base. And in the morning, they would, like, have, you know, formations over the house. They would be flying at, like, you know, supersonic speeds over the, over the Sinai, and, you know, because they were still kind of, like, technically, you know, in conflict with Israel. So they would, like, you know, everyone on the Israeli side, they would, like, sort of posture. On the Egyptian side, they would posture. And, like, they would land all their planes, like, right by us. So it felt very militarized where we were. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so... It didn't feel like you were in like just some regular place. A, I mean, we were in the middle of nowhere. And B, like it felt like maybe about 10 years before that they had the war. And so you would drive around and there would be bombed out pill boxes boxes, and and there was like, you know, houses that were blown up and bullet holes and walls. And like you're like, oh, okay, like something happened here, you know. But I guess as a kid, you didn't really put it all together. So it always had this kind of like weird tension there. Like, is a war going to break out? Like, is this this okay? Like, is everything cool? You know, like, so... Did you travel the region as a kid? Yeah. Well, Mid-East. we did a lot of Egypt. So, yeah. I mean, it was fascinating. So we would like take, 
you know, the car and we would go to Cairo and we'd stay there for like, you know, weeks and stuff. And we would go to the, the ruins and the museums and we would go to places that most tourists don't go. Also. Right. And then we went all the way south to like the Valley of the Kings and all the way up the Nile to the north to Alexandria and all of these places and then to the Sinai. And also, you know, and, and again, my father, you know, he had this very like sort of he had a deep interest in religion. And I mean, he, he was a religious guy, but he wasn't like the most religious guy. Yeah. It's just that he was fascinated with it. And so we would go to monasteries, like on the top of like mountains in the Sinai, and we would go like to like weird kind of Coptic churches in the middle of nowhere yeah. just to see this stuff, you know. It must have been fascinating. For, for me, it was. And also, you know, when you're a kid at that age, like you, it's, it's totally new. And so you yeah. don't know any of this stuff. And, you know, I came from the South Shore of Long Island where everyone's Ooh. eating Doritos and watching Who's the Boss, and here yeah. I am, you know, kind of, oh, my God, I'm like in a, a tomb of a mummy and like a pharaoh, and like this is cool and my sister and I, I, we, you know, we were, we did it all together. Yeah. She was about two years older than me. We, you know, I think we both found it kind of fascinating. I mean, granted, like it gets a little hairy, like, you know, being two Westerners in like Egypt, we had blonde hair at the time, you know, people would always really? stop us huh. and, and pet our heads and be like, oh my God, Ishtar, Ishtar, you know, like all this <laughs> stuff. And, and, you know, that stuff got annoying, but it also taught you a lot. You know, it taught you how to be an outsider and, and, and taught you what it's like not to be part of the group, you know? Yeah. And it was a really interesting time for me, like, especially at that, that point, you know. And your dad, I mean, how would, how did he describe his job at the time versus how he describes it now? Is there a difference or is it the same? <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the joke is, you know, he, he speaks a lot of languages, you know, mm-hmm. he reads a lot of languages. His, his, his hobby is to sort of, you know, uh, translate the ancient Aramaic Bible into cool. like all these different languages. It's he's, he's like out of his mind. Like, and he's self-taught really? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. And my sister's a psychologist. Uh-huh. And when she was studying to get her PhD in developmental psychology, one of the things that she needed to do was figure out how to do IQ tests. Right. right. Cause she was going to work in schools and whatnot. And so one, you know, I was in college and she was doing her PhD program and we came home for Thanksgiving one year and she's like, hey, I got to give out IQ tests. I got to practice this. So I'm going to give it to everyone in the family. And I was all for it. You know, I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm smarter than everyone in here. Like I want to, you know, prove it. And, yeah. and so we all took them and it was kind of funny because it's like, you know, she gave out the results at like on Thanksgiving or something like that. And it was like, I'm smarter than my aunt. And like, he was smarter than so-and-so, my cousins, you know, all this. And it became really like weird. We were all kind of drunk when it happened. Yeah, so yeah. it was like funny. But then she came up to me. She's like, you know, she's like, I, I did dad's wrong. And I'm like, oh, why? She's like, I just think I got it wrong. So I have to do it again. And so she did it again. And it turns out she brought it to her professor at, at yeah. the university. And she and turns out that he tr- scored off the charts. He was like, right. Just like, way at the end of the bell curve. T- like Maybe off the bell curve. Like insanely smart. Yeah. You know? And so it was like, whoa. You know, a lot of things started making sense. That he was on like this almost like quasi genius level of of stuff, you know. Yeah. Like, and we and when when he was confronted by it, or not confronted, but when she started talking to him about it, he didn't want to talk about. it. He was like, "Yeah, whatever," you know. Like, yeah. blah, blah, blah. he was very humble about it, you know. Huh. But it, you know, it made a lot of sense that he was into all of these these things, and you know, and then we started asking like, <laughs> maybe that has something to do with the honorable discharge, you know, out of the army, you know, like. Because those guys know stuff. It's like, you know, when you get some super yeah, smart, smart dude guy. in the barracks, it's like, mm, He's well, di- maybe, way different than everybody else. Yeah, maybe, I'm going to single that guy out for something. Yeah, maybe not send him into the meat grinder in Vietnam, and maybe he's got another thing going on. You yeah, know? So, interesting. I mean, and that's all conjecture, but, and to this day, we, we joke about it. But he's very, like, kind of coy about that joke. He's, he's always like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you'll see. It's, it, my funeral's going to be interesting for you. <laughs> right. Like, who's going to show up at that funeral? <laughs> and, but, you know, like, I mean, I know my dad. Like, he is, like, who he is. And, and there's no, I don't think there's any hidden, like, sort of CIA ne- neck-snapping moments that, in his life. But I definitely think that, like, some things happen to set him off on his vector, you know? Yeah. yeah. Now, over in Egypt, mm-hmm. uh, people that came over your house or specifically associates of your dad, work associates, sure. friends, whatever. Was there, did everything seem totally on a level with them? Um, you know, th- there was a lot of, uh, the engineers was totally on the level. Like these guys were like shit heels from the South, you know, like they were right. like, you know, coming in, chewing tobacco and drinking beers. And, and they had protract, having that protractors you know, in their pocket. Yeah. And they're all like, you know, they're, they were like NASA guys from the fifties, right. you know, they're all like smart, but they're going to go out and play, you know, like, you know, flip cup and, yeah, <laughs> you know, right, like, and get right. after it. But, there was also like the periphery of where we were living. There was um, 
we had a gardener who we found out was actually like a, an informant for the secret police for Egypt that was watching everyone. He there. was watching you guys. Yeah. And Not just you, but... Yeah, everyone. And then we had our driver was like a... It was weird because you know, we got to know him because you, you could, couldn't drive around by yourself. And so we had a guy named Muhammad, Mr. Muhammad, and he would drive us around. And yeah. he turned out to be like a war hero mm-hmm. that was like highly decorated. And we're like, why is he our driver? You know, like there's a lot right. of like... It doesn't quite make sense. But, you know, I mean, I guess what happens is like... Yeah, the Egyptians were like, you know, all these Americans are coming in. These smart Americans sitting here, and it's like, keep an eye on them. Right. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, you know, That's what, interesting. What are they going to do? So your dad's skill set is engineering its languages. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Anything else in there that... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you ruled out next nap. You see, I'm not <laughs> yeah, I mean, poking around yeah. here. Yeah, I mean, the easy... It's funny, because it's like the easy place to go is be like, oh, the guy was a, a spy, you yeah. know, for sure, but... I think anyone who worked in the military industrial complex during the Reagan era, like overseas, like had some compa- like some sort of connection with like the political aspect with of the that. State Department. Yeah, like I mean, way. you had to get visas to do these things. You had, you know, yeah. So there was always something happening that was like, you know, not on the level. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it was always some hidden stuff happening. Yeah. Now, were there a lot of other kids there in Egypt to I hang a, out with and stuff? One of my one of my friends there was a, a kid named Tom. Yeah, and he was from he was from rural Georgia. And it was funny because he smoked a pack of cigarettes a day at 10 years old. Oh, my God. <laughs> and he was the, the best dude in the world, right? <laughs> and uh, he... He made I, your clothes smell bad. Well, he made, I smoked my first cigarette with that guy. And my, my mom found out. She was like, I can't even... You can't hang out with him anymore. I'm like, who am I going to hang out with? You yeah. Know, like, he's the only kid around. And there was a couple other kids that showed up here and there. And, you know, it was fun. But we had um, a lot of Italian kids that were there as well. There were all the construction workers, like I said, were from right. Milan. Right, so, so their kids were there. And so, you know, I got a quick lesson in making friends with people who don't speak English. And yeah. so it was kind of an interesting developmental moment, you know. And, uh, like, did you go outside the wire? Did you guys sneak outside and all the had time. adventures? Like, what kind of stuff happened on those? I had a white rowboat that they would say that we could take out a little bit or whatever. And, you know, it was very like Tom Sawyer-y, you know, uh-huh. like where it was just like we're on our own a lot of yeah. times. And that was what the 80s were anyway. Absolutely. You know? But I think when you're in the 80s in the foreign country, like the, you should be a little bit more, right. like sort of on top of your kids. But my parents were so they don't get, <laughs> so they get kidnapped. <laughs> my parents like, just go for it, you know, like, yeah. and, and I found myself rowing out into the into the lakes, up to those big giant oil tankers coming around the horn from Saudi Arabia, like getting as close as I could to them. Really? And then, you know, we we would venture out into these little like bombed out areas from the war and just kind of like hang out in those places and see what was there and right. find like you know shell casings and and like whatever. Um, you know, we would go into town once in a while, but my mom didn't know all this stuff. But yeah. like, she, there was times when like I really disappeared and she got freaked out and like rang the alarm bell and like. You know, all the security would show up and stuff like that. But huh. for the most part, like, I was respectful. Yeah. But, like, we would go a little but bit But you're further. kids. You want to have an adventure. Yeah, especially when you think you're Indiana Jones living yeah. in the middle of, you know. And, right, yeah. and that Tom Sawyer-esque aspect of that. That's pretty... It was fun. pretty fun. Yeah, it, it was sounds fun. pretty fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, so, were, th- were there things, like, you missed about this country? Did you feel like, um, oh, I'm missing... Who, you mentioned who's the boss the other, or Alf or stuff like that. Like, I don't know. Was there just things you missed? Of like, course. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember I went over there, and my mom was like, you got to pack like whatever you want to bring with you for yeah. like, cuz we're only going to come back like here and there or whatever. And I remember I brought a Mad magazine with me. And you know in Mad oh, magazine yeah. they had those fold-ins? Yep. And that exactly. By the end of the time I was there that fold-in was so folded in, man. Like yeah. I was just like, you know, right. and, and you know, there wasn't a lot of toys, and there wasn't a lot of stuff and, you know, Christmas was weird there, you know, cuz like A, you're in a Muslim country and B, like there's no Christmas trees anywhere. Yeah, there's not Christmas like, stuff all over the yeah, place. And, and it's you, a million degrees. I'm, yeah, it, yeah, I mean, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad? Okay. No, but, you know, you get all like fr- like toys from like the, like, you know, from the port city and they're all French. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, what is this stuff? You know, like yeah, French all toys. your food is French and like, you know, Greek and stuff yeah, like that. So less than desirable French toys. Yeah. And you're coming from New York, you know, you got a lot at your disposal. I did miss, you know, like the creature comforts of, you know, the United States. And that was something that I definitely, I remember feeling. But like what? Like what? Doritos. Okay. <laughs> really? So I mean, those kinds of things. Just like little just stupid things. stuff. Yeah. Like when you're a kid, you want that stuff. Like candy. And like, like juicy fruits or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Like whatever. Yeah. And um, Three Musketeers bars. Can't find it. So you had like yeah, those weird, like when you go into an import store here and there's all those weird candies. Yeah. It's, you had all that stuff except probably their Arabic versions of those. Yeah. Mostly, most of their stuff came from Greece. Oh, really? Which is which is weird. So we'd have a lot of Greek stuff. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Um, but at that time too, I imagine, you know, it's not like you had social media and you saw what you were missing. No, like you didn't have anything. Like, right, you didn't know. We were still writing letters back and forth. And, yeah. You know, once in a while you would get on like a telephone call with somebody, but that wasn't very common. Yeah. Yeah. 
So that's like a little bit of the downside. What's what's the uh, what's the upside of that? So you're they're doing things you're not, but uh, you are doing things that they're not. I yeah. Mean, and imagine there's obvious stuff like oh, you got to travel and you saw this, you know, all the antiquity or you know whatever. Yeah, we we would travel quite a bit. Like um, so on the weekends, like you know, if you're living in New Jersey, like go to Pennsylvania or yeah. you go to like you know wherever. We go to Israel. You know, like we would we would go to Jerusalem or a lot or, you know, Tel Aviv and we would sort of see all of that. So that was super interesting. And then, you know, Cairo is kind of like a Mediterranean area. So we would fly to Athens or we would fly to like, you know, Portugal or we, yeah. we would take advantage of the, the, the physical location we were in. So I got to see a lot of different cultures, a lot of like different, you know, things and, and whatnot. But yeah, it was it was interesting as a kid. And, you know, back then also like the planes. They didn't have all the entertainment that you had. So you stare out the window, you read maps, you know, you're sort of like putting it all together, you know? Yeah. And it's that kind of experience is something that's gone forever, you know? And yeah, I, with my own kids now, I wonder, you know, how much they would pick up in an experience like that because it's so easy with technology to kind of like make the illusion that you're not even there. Yeah. Know? It's so interesting you mentioned maps because even now, maps. Um, you know, I think we growing up, like you're used to having maps. So you understand not just where you're going, right. like point A to point B, but how everything else is kind of set up in relation to that. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And now I'm even starting to lose that ability because yeah. I'm finding, you know, because I'm just not, you just not, you just don't have a map in front of you. I mean, but it's, it's a lot of things. Like I, I, this morning I was trying to do long division in, in the shower. I was like, oh, I like, I had to do some number for my bank account or whatever. Yeah. And I just like got locked up. And I'm like, ah, do I, did I forget how to do? Probably did. Operation? Probably did. Yeah. And I'm like, this is terrible. Like, because you rely on Google Home. I'm like, you know, what's 75 divided by 6.5? You know, right. like, and you got the answer right there. There's no work left to be done. No, you're that. not working through yeah. it yourself. Yeah. 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 So, um, is there any other way? I mean, besides the things you mentioned, your childhood was different than other American kids. Is there anything else like jumps to mind? I mean, the experience itself was super unique. You know, I think coming back to the United States, you know, after doing all that. And, yeah, you know, I we came back and then we would go back and forth and whatnot too. And you just had a lot more information about the world. Like you had been out there. And anyway, when, when you got back and you yeah, were how like... how did that feel? It was cool. Like it was like, hey man, like I've been out there. Like let me tell you what the world's like, you know? And yeah. like all, all the kids were like, oh shit. Like, you know, <laughs> like you did that, you know, this thing. And it was, it was fun. It made, it made me feel unique yeah. in a lot of ways. And I think a lot of kids you know, or looking for that feeling of being like, especially at that age around 10, 11, I watch my daughter right now, she's becoming a tween. And it's all about finding that, you know, sort of like emotional sort of, you know, edge, like, who am I? Yeah. You know, what do I believe in? And what, have, what do I know? What makes me different? That middle school thing, you know? Uh-huh. And it was really easy for me, because I think I kind of like jumped ahead a little bit, you know, emotionally, I was like, I, I, I've seen some of this, these kids haven't seen. Anything. Did that go to your ego in any way? Like, did you feel more like you were more sophisticated, or you just felt like, oh, I just feel different in a I felt positive com- way? I just felt confident. Yeah, confidence. Yeah, okay. I mean, that's it, how it expressed itself. And I think, I think that that in of itself helped. I think was something that just set me on the path to maybe today. You know, yeah. like it's in my job, and you know this. It's like I go in front of the room, and like it's like let me take you, let me tell you a story, let me tell you a story, you know, right? let me show you like what you got to buy, and like let me kind of make make it all feel something to you. You know, I, I sell feelings to people. And so storytelling was is a big part of that. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, with my job have the ability to weave those tales, you know, to tell the stories. And, you know, whether you're a writer or you're an art director or whoever, you know, like that's the main thing to selling great creative in an advertising industry is to be able to sort of lock in with someone emotionally, you know, and really get them to believe in it. And I think confidence and I think like a wide liberal like you know arts education like it's right. really important pulling things in yeah. from all different yeah. strands of knowledge from experience from whatever yeah it's really interesting when i talk to people who have like specialties yeah you know like doctors or like people like lawyers i mean everyone hates talking to a lawyer but like maybe that's a bad example <laughs> 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 like people who would like just know a lot Usually about when what... you're talking to a lawyer it's never <laughs> but um you know it's I, I find it hard to connect with them because i'm like like, I don't know one thing, you know? <laughs> like, I don't, well, it's, yeah, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. And I've, in, in some ways, I admire those people for being yeah. so disciplined to know one thing so thoroughly. Mm-hmm. But in another respect, I often feel sorry for them in a way because, like, you and I, we work here. And, mm-hmm. like, people, it's funny, just about this podcast, people will say, I can't believe you work with so many interesting people. Right, and I go, right. well, I'm sure you do, too. Yeah. But then sometimes Probably I think not, about right, it and I go, yeah. well, maybe not. <laughs> You know, maybe you're right about this. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? So yeah. I like to pe- give people the benefit of the doubt. And I don't know. Ultimately, I do believe that's true. 
and it always fascinates me how a lot, so many clients and people like, like I, I just don't know how you guys do that. You know, like, how do you think like that? And I'm like, I don't know how you do that. Like, I don't know how you think yeah. like that. You know, like, so it's, it's, it's something that really, like, you cultivate over time, but I think it begins... Um, creatively at least, you know, like I think that process begins with a certain type of confidence to say what you're thinking, you know, and that's, that's the first step is to sort of be confident enough to kind of put an idea out in the world yeah, and say, Hey, you know, like I thought of something and I think it's good. Right. And, and how many times do people in other professions get to do that? It's a really rare treat. And, you know, we, we take it for granted because, you know, you could be, you know, an underwriter at an insurance brokerage and no one cares what you think, you mm -hmm. know, and, and it's, it's something that's really freeing and nice, you know. About yeah, to expose your vulnerability. Sure, or, or, or get rid of it. Right. You know, like, yeah. I, don't, I don't feel the slightest thing anymore when I walk into a room of 50 people and they want to know what I think. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, I just don't care. I'm like, look, this is what I think. And like, if you like it or not, and usually it's not that draconian. It's more like, let me explain to you why it's a good idea. So it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Well, you have a good way too. I mean, I haven't seen you present. You have a good way of just listening to people too and not being dogmatic about what you're saying, but responding. Well, that was, um, I mean, I, I have a, a degree in philosophy and I really, mean, yeah. And I remember my, <laughs> Do I look surprised. <laughs> <laughs> my dad, back to my dad. Uh, he, I remember when I graduated, I came off the stage with my diploma and he was standing right there and my chair of my philosophy department was standing with him. And I was, and his name was Dr. Johnson as well. So hmm. there's a bunch of Johnsons hanging yeah. out. And I was like, I was like, if Dr. Johnson, Mr. Johnson, you know, like all this stuff. And um, my dad turned to Dr. Johnson and said, so what's my son going to do now? Is he going to drive a philosophy truck around? <laughs> and I was like, thanks, man. That's kind of harsh. But, you know, it, it was a funny thing in the sense that, like, what do you do with that? Yeah. You know, like, and now that I'm older, you know, oldish, and I'm like at a point where I can reflect a little bit about those decisions. Philosophy was great. I mean, it teaches how to argue. It teaches you read books no one can understand. Mm. I didn't even understand them when I was reading them. I was just like, I know I should read this. And you learn how to sort of make arguments, and yeah. you, and you learn how to sort of talk to people and sort of express your your opinions or your beliefs or your ideas in ways that make logical sense, but also sort right. of affect them emotionally. You know, like and it was a really weird discipline to have. It's almost like black magic when you get into philosophy because that's really all it is. It's right. like, how do I argue? How do I get my way? Yeah, I mean, you think about, like, some deep stuff. I mean, I you know, I only have a bachelor's degree in it. I didn't go any further, but it was like, you know. Oh, you're one of those philosophers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm not a real philosopher. But <laughs> the, uh, I did, you know, a senior thesis on um, cyborgs and gender relations, you know, okay. like like weird what shit. What was the name of it? Was it have one of those big, long academic names? Do you remember? No, I don't remember. It okay. was just a paper I wrote. Okay, yeah. yeah. But, um, you know, but reading, like, you know, French existentialism and, like, you know, Kierkegaard and like you know all these guys like it was just crazy like the stuff that they were onto you and know? you had the patience for that stuff too yeah I thought it was cool yeah I mean I I was kind of like a, an asshole about it like I was like you know you what, what are you studying like advertising <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> look where you ended up. exactly look how right. things turned out exactly I'm a nothing man. I know you're always kind of writing or at least conceiving some kind of pitch sheet man. on sh kind of short films. Sure. Writing short films. But like, mm -hmm. what what sort of started that? And like, what do you, how often do you do it? Like, what do you do with it? Is it just like for yourself? Is it? Well, I'm, I'm making a film in um, May. Okay. We're, we're shooting a film like from, I think it's like May 13th to May 20th. So you put together a posse of production. Sure, yeah. People who can do it. Okay. Yeah, I raise the money. I, um, oh, really? Mm -hmm. Wow, good for yeah. you. I, uh, I'm directing it. I wrote it. Um, you know, it's a good, it's a, it's a cool story. It's a story of, it's a couple that, uh, it's been married for 40 years and the husband hates his wife so much that he robs a bank to go to federal prison. So he never has to spend another day with her. Wow. That's an awesome concept. And then at the end, when he gets, um, to the judge and they get the sentencing, he gives him house arrest. <laughs> so he has to spend the rest of his life with her. And so it's a good twist. It's a good ironic little thing. Um, it's about a 19 page script. So yeah. it's probably gonna be about 20 minutes long or whatever. Yeah. But, you know, we got like some, I mean, along the way in advertising, you meet some really interesting people. So like great DPs, you know, yeah, like good yeah. help like here and there and like all this stuff that, you know, you talk on set when you're making commercials. Like, wouldn't it be great if we did something together and we're, we're doing it. So that is awesome. That's happening in May. And 
I've written like five feature films. Yeah. And I have uh, like a couple of different shorts that I have still. And by yourself all the time or with a partner sometimes? I, I have a partner for two of them. Okay. Different partners or same partner? Um, actually, he's uh, he's the head of, he's one of the managing directors of the Webby Awards. He okay. and I go way back. And he was like my best man at the wedding or whatever. But he's like a funny, weird dude. Yeah. Worst writer I've ever worked with. But he has like the greatest ideas, you know? So like I'll sit there and be like, what do you think about this? And he'll do something and I'll be like, all right, I'll write it. Cause if he writes it, it's terrible. Right. You turn that, that porn into poetry. <laughs> exactly. Right. 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 Yeah. But so, I mean, you know, when I, when I had my, my daughter about 10 years ago, I was sitting around and I'm like, you know, life looks a little different to me right now. You know, like it's not just about me. And I started reflecting a lot on like the things that I like to do. And I really liked writing, you know, like, and not just advertising writing. And so I started putting pen to paper on screenplays and things like that. And, you know, it was pretty successful for a while. I had some guy at Gersh in, in L.A. kind of rep me for a bit. And yeah. we had some, like, you know, bites on some movies and all that kind of stuff. But, like, nothing ever really came out of it. And then my career in advertising kind of took a, a hockey stick move. Yeah. And I was like, all right, you know, like, I'll go do that for a while because this is super interesting. And yeah. I went up to Boston and I was, you know, at Arnold with P. Vivat. Yeah. And, um you know, it was a really great time up there. It was, you know, super cool working on great accounts. And one thing led to another. And Pete went to Deutsch. And then he kind of left me and my partner with the keys to the kingdom up there. So about a good two years, we were kind of running Arnold creatively. Yeah. And, you know, we had, a, we had a blast. It was so much fun. And I never really thought about, like, getting into uh, writing because that wasn't, like, as exciting to me as what was happening. Right. Um, but, you know, you kind of like go through the things and I moved back to New York because my dad had gotten colon cancer and we, you know, it was pretty bad. And yeah. I thought like, you know, it's probably time to be with my family again. Yeah. So I moved down. He beat it, yeah. which was great. And, you know, but it moved me back to New York and it landed me at Deutsch, which I, you know, I love Deutsch and it's yeah. been great here. The people here are fantastic. And, um, but recently I was just kind of like, yeah, you know, I have all this stuff sitting on ice. Like, why don't I just do something? Get back it? into yeah. it. Yeah. 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 And when do you find time to do it? Because it's not like your hours here or. Yeah, no, I'm like wall to wall here. Yeah. But I mean, uh, I commute. So I come in from Long Island every day. Oh, so, and you so get I, that time, yeah. I ride on the train. Okay. Yeah. Really I, get, cool. I get about a good 35 minutes of solid riding. And that's all you really need. But that gets up 35 minutes a day. You know, open up your five laptop, days a week. Right whatever. in the morning. You get all, you're fresh. Just go after it and then. You're done. That's awesome. Yeah. Now, just going back to the film you're, you're going to be doing, it's short film. Like, yeah. you know, we went, to, my wife and I went to the um, Academy Award nominated short films. Oh, yeah. And they have the, the, the short films, which are basically fiction, and they've got animated, and they got short documentaries. Sure. So there's three short categories. But, uh, man, the ones this year were so depressing. You know, and that's the thing. I was actually just talking to my wife about that because I actually watched all of the the short, the Academy-nominated shorts. Right. And, like, and there was the one about the kid dying in the sand. Yeah, and then there was, like, the school shooting one. The school, and, right. Yeah, and then I was like, is this they the right? so depressing. But I feel like that's where you get to do the depressing stuff is the shorts because I don't think anyone's going to green light, like, a million bucks to do, like, a, the most depressing film of all time. You know what I mean? Like, there has to be a return on a... On so if you're into depressing stuff and you're a creative film person, <laughs> right, you're, gonna do you're a in short a short category. <laughs> well, I mean, think about it. It's like to do a, to do a feature film requires so much. And, yeah. and people expect a return on investment on a feature film. Right. A short film is a throwaway. Like, you you do not expect to get into Oh, that. yeah. If you look you at know? it that way, yeah. 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 So you can do what you want on a short film. But your concept, the, uh, the man who hates his wife and robs the bank. Yeah. Is that a black comedy kind of thing? Yeah, it's dark. Yeah. It, but, you know, it's... You know, the funny thing about it is, like, when I started writing it, I started writing it about my parents. Yeah. Not that they hate each other, but I was just like, there's... When you're married, and you're married for a long time, and I've been married, you know, now, like, I think, like, 12 years. Yeah, I've been 27 years. And yeah. you start to see that you're becoming one organism, right? Like, you're not two different people anymore. Like, it really does, you become one thing. Yeah. And, but you're one organism that has, like, that hates certain things about itself. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. or that gets irritated by certain things about itself. And those things over time become very, like, kind of... um bigger things if they're not sort of checked or you don't get used to them, right? So the story that I wrote was more about like how like the little spark caused the bigger fire, caused the, this thing. And it never thing. got checked. Right. And so like little things like, you know, picking nail polish off your off your fingers annoys right. the hell out of somebody or the way someone eats. Yeah. And it's actually like kind of like a comedic way of looking at the worst case scenario of yeah. marriage where like you've seen it, you're at a diner or at a yeah. restaurant and two people are just eating in silence. Yeah. And you're like, how did it get there? And this movie was about there, right? Like right. like what that looks like on the other side of just looking at it from the outside. Right, and, right, right. But there's comedy in that. 
You know, there's comedy in like the complete failure of <laughs> 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 the marriage. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. The inability to resolve those things. Right, right. Right. Yeah. And someone, the resolution becomes this extreme bank robbery thing, essentially. Yeah. Like, I mean, at what? Least the, at least for the guy. Yeah. Like, what desperate desperate measures do you go to to sort of feel something besides like, you know, the rote of your day to day? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That sounds like fun. <laughs> it, now, how long, now, how long do you think it'll take to shoot it? Uh, we have a six to seven day schedule right now. Yeah. I mean, I took, I took all my vacation. You know, well, at least a week or so of vacation right up before um, Memorial Day to get it done, uh, which has pissed my wife off beyond belief. Yeah. She's like, what are you talking You're about? You're just going to go work for a week, basically. Yeah, I'm not taking a vacation this year. Yeah. And uh, you doing it right here? Yeah, we're going to do it out um, in Long Island because um, okay. a lot of the stuff that we have access to, like there's some favors we're pulling in, yeah. locations and stuff. Right? A bank? Do you have a bank location? Yep, got a oh, bank. That's awesome. Got a bank, got a prison, got a courtroom, got, you know, a diner, you know, like yeah. a gun store. You All know. right. <laughs> like a lot, a lot of like, you know, the, the great places in the world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> places so, you want to be. Yeah. So the, the heist is going to happen at a real bank. Yeah, we'll it's see. It's really exciting. We'll see. It'll be fun. I want to ask you about your wife, actually. Sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a little weird. It sounds a little weird. No, it's not weird. Don't worry. Um, I mean, you're a pretty politically aware person. Yeah. I mean, if Facebook tells you anything. I, although I have dialed it down quite a bit on Facebook. Yeah, After you After the Trump election, I went pretty crazy. You did go bizarre. Now, I consider you pretty politically aware. Sure. And pretty politically vocal. Maybe not as much and as angry as you used to be, yeah, but still. Yeah, right. But where does your wife rate versus you? I mean, I sense your wife is even more so. She, um, you know, it changed, I think the election in 2016 changed her completely. So she wasn't so much before? She was. I mean, she was very like, you know, she's a, she's a lefty, you know, she's a, yeah. she's a Democrat and, you know, she's always been very vocal about like her stance and she's, you know, Tra- she- Tracy's like, you know, she's a truth teller. She's, she's yeah. always had an activist vibe to her. And, um, I think after the election, she just was like, I'm not having this. And she went out and she just re- recreated herself. It was kind of amazing to watch. Huh. Yeah. And recreated herself in what way? Well, she started um, working with Moms Demand Action, um, the, the, gun, the gun thing, gun yep. sense, mm-hmm. um, you know, stuff. But did that, was that rooted out of Sandy Hook or is that a, s- a parallel thing? Yeah, you know, it definitely was. But I think like, I have my one of my college uh, friends, uh, this woman Allison, that I went to. She was involved in Moms Demand Action, and and through Facebook they became friends. And Allison kept telling Tracy, she was like, you know, you really should start to think about like putting all of the kind of you know intensity and and like you know action that you're doing on social media into yeah. the real world. And she kind of went for it and joined it. And you know, pretty soon in Moms Demand Action, she started just like kind of climbing really fast. You yeah. know, like you know through the organization. And now she's one of the head of, she's like the Nassau County lead for Moms and Men Action out in Long Island. But she's also, you know, throwing her hat in the ring for the New York State job. And But through that, like, she got to meet a lot of politicians. So, like, you know, huh. there's a lot of people on her side in politics. And, you know, I, you know, she meets senators and she meets, like, congressmen. And she has, you know, she went to something with Nancy Pelosi the other day. Like, it's, like, crazy, you know, wow. like how, like, in, in she is. And so now the the New York State Dems are like, you know, you should run. You should do something. And they're sort of like grooming her and kind of getting her ready for it. And, you know, of course, she's like, I'm not running unless I'm winning, you know, <laughs> like there's that kind of vibe. So um, that's what I do. Yeah. Now, how about all the fundraising stuff that will be involved with that? Does she have any appetite or ability in that with, with that? She's she's a very dynamic person. You know, yeah. She was an art teacher. Okay. Um, she went and got a master's degree in education. But her she, you know, undergrad, she was a art history major yeah. as well. Um, but, you know, she also Tracy battled um anxiety for a really long time like she you know since a young age always had like you know anxiety disorder and only i think after our first kid she really started taking it seriously she's like you know this is something that's really holding me back Mm. and so she sort of you know got help for it and sort of helped start fixing herself and getting herself better and i think after that she was so much more confident and what she wanted to do and she started really just stepping into herself, you know. It was, yeah. it was amazing to watch, you know. And so she basically, you know, will go out to elections and she'll go to, like, community organizations and stuff like that and really lobby for, you know, them to sort of take certain laws and certain steps to kind of curb gun violence in the country. And, you know, we're lucky we live in New York State because just recently, in the last three months, there's been so much legislation passed, you know, about gun safety in, in New York 
that it was kind of amazing to watch, you know, like just how many things after the election, because we're a true blue state now, you know, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. like all the way through. And so they got a lot of things passed. So her, her thing is she wants to go a little bit more national with it now. Cause she feels like she's kind of in like a comfort zone in New York. She's like, I'd love to go to Oklahoma and just start shit there. Right. <laughs> like and, start and, shaking the trees. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, the recent thing in New Zealand and particularly the government's response, does she look at that and go, that can happen here? Or does she really think like, you know what, I, I get why that can't happen here. She's a realist. I mean, I, we were founded on a notion of gun ownership yeah. in the United States. And I think that the difference between what's happening in New Zealand and what's happening here is that even Moms of Man Action will admit to you that they're not for banning guns. Right. You know, like they're not, they don't want to take your guns away. And that's the main thing that I think happens with, you know, with these organizations is that the spin from the other side from the NRA is like, well, they're coming for your guns. And they're like, I don't want to come for your guns. I just want you to have a background check. I just want you not to have like a domestic abuser buy AR-15s or, you know, those types of like common sense gun reform things that we need in the country. But, you know, I mean, she's a realist. She knows that's not going to happen. New Zealand's like kind of like, you know, you knew that was going to happen in New Zealand. If, it, if if something bad happened in a place like that, same thing in Australia, they had a massacre right. they did the 20 thing. years ago and they just got rid of it all. You know, yeah. like that's what normal sane people do, you know, right. but, but we're not a normal sane country. country we're, yeah. We have a very big, big tent country with lots of different ideas. It's not as homogenous as, as we would like it to be and it shouldn't be that way. So we should work with each other you yeah. know, to get it all done. I'm not for banning guns. I, think that people should own guns i think you should run for office listen to me i'm serious <laughs> seriously because you like you just present yourself in a very moderate articulate intelligent way and i go yeah i bind to that yeah well i mean listen but guys but look at my away. background you'll never i'll never get through <laughs> no no way no. and once they start doing background checks <laughs> you're really done you're oh, yeah. toast yeah no way coming here was a risk <laughs> Sorry, got a last thing I want to talk to you about. Um, you know, your your history, sort of, you know, your dad's background, you know, living in Egypt and the place that you lived and all those experiences you had there, being a philosophy major, having Tracy as your wife, mm -hmm. you know, and that influence, sure. um, your aspirations and abilities in the screenwriting thing and dreams and kind of where you're taking that and, yeah. and how that fits into your life. How does that, like, you sort of blend it all together. How do you... How does that sort of inform how you do your job here? Like just how you interact with people, just your philosophy as you walk around in the day. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, my I've never had anyone I respected as a boss be like, you know, draconian and my way or the highway, you yeah. know, like and get angry and like, you know, spin out. Like it's all around us in this industry. And I always found that that was like such a bad way to go about it because, you know, you're dealing with creative people. You know, I got a lot of people that, like, are really good at writing, a lot of artists, you know, a lot of, like, painters and designers and people that, like, think differently and, like, have emotional, like, stakes and things, you know. Mm. There's no place for the the kind of iron fist. You mm. know what I mean? Like, it's this is art. And so, for me, remembering that, you know, and going into people and sort of trying to get the best out of them instead of trying to get, like, my way. Because my way isn't always the right way. And, like, we hire these people because how great they are. Right. You know what I mean? Like, you're an amazing writer. You're incredible ideas. And you have such great, you know, talents across the board. Like, why would you ever want to, like, have them fearful of you? You know, why would you ever want them to sort of, you know, only do it your way? It just doesn't make any sense to me. And I think that when you get to a point where you think you know everything, you know nothing. Yeah. You know? And, like, and that's one of the things that you have to be careful of when you start rising in the advertising world. Because I've known plenty of people who thought they knew everything. And then they just fell apart, you know. I think being humble and being gracious and being interested in, in other people is probably the best way to do that. And being funny. Like, make this place fun, yeah. you know. Like, it, it's not an advertising agency unless everyone's laughing and, like, going out and becoming lifelong friends. You know, I think you're right. I mean, it's funny. You mentioned those things. And, and you know, and I'm not, I'm not just snowing you here. I think you really embody all those things you talk about. And I really do mean that. Yeah, so, I'm also, like, ripped, too, right, man? You are ripped, yeah. right, and <laughs> handsome. And you dress well. Yeah, you know? What do you drive? Uh, like, a Maserati everywhere I go. Of course. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I kind no, of... actually, I got rid of my car. I have a Vespa. <laughs> <laughs> do you really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to. I'm trying not to have any. I don't want to own You're trying anything. to have no, no carbon yeah, footprint, like I, too? No, well, it's less about that. It's just that I think as you 
as you get older and you kind of like know what's important to you, I don't like things. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I don't like cars. I don't like I have a house because like I need a house. You need a house. You know, yeah. but like I'm not into the stuff. Wait a minute. So you don't have a car? No, I got rid of it. My oh. wife has a car. I don't have a car. Okay, so you have one. You're a one car family. Yeah, yeah. I, I bought a Vespa and I take that to the train station. I love Vespas. Yeah, and yeah. um, but in, in the winter you can't do it. So yeah. then I. I kind of hitch a ride with my wife in the morning, or I take my bike, or I like you know figure out a way to get there. A lot of Ubers lately, which just kind of sucks, but yeah. But the Vespa, like, what kind of uh, your commute to the train station? What kind of roads are you going on in the Vespa? They're kind of back roads. It's not okay. like a uh, like for about like you know one minute I'm on like a big road, and then the rest of it's just kind of scooting around suburbia. You know, why don't you get a real motorcycle like me? Well, because I'm not a man like you. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, oh, listen. <laughs> I think we could end right there. But listen, man, I want, I want Pete, I want to thank you, really. This has been really been great. It's been fun. Yeah, thank you. Uh, nice little fun. chat. And, you know, we can talk about that other thing at some point. Yeah, whatever. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. See you see later. It, Thanks, man. It. Bye. Digging Into Deutsch is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Matthew George, with additional editing from Danielle Morrison and Vonda LaPage. Technical assistance is provided by Trip McCune, Evelyn Martinez, and Jeff Morgan. Also, thanks to Chris Catone, Rondal Meeks, Val DeFebo, and especially my old pal Barbara Chandler for their concept and editorial inputs. Thanks for listening, and until next time, we'll just keep on digging. We can talk about your vasectomy if you want, by the way. Sure. No one really wants to talk about that. I'll talk about it. Um, did you... Have they uh, improved the procedure a bit? Like, I haven't it done still, it yet. Is, well, I know no. that. But <laughs> <laughs> is it still irreversible? They say that one in like 300, no, sorry, one in like 1,000 guys have a regenerative like vas deferens or something like that. Really? Yeah. Wow, you're spitting out the clinical terms yeah. like a maniac. There. I'm very impressed. The, you can uh, tell I went to two different doctors about this. Two different consultations. My first guy, uh, his anesthesiologist was out of network, and I was like, well, what good does that do? I'm not paying an anesthesiologist $10,000, you know? They got to so, put you under? No, it's an option. Oh, okay. But you're, <laughs> but you're taking that. Oh, of course. When, <laughs> yeah, when they're working with the plumbing. You don't, uh, you don't stay awake for that. No way. Anyway, I'm going to advise you against it. Because I think, you know, if the world goes children of men, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, And you're yeah, one yeah, of the yeah. last sterile yeah. males. You've got you to be there for humanity. Yeah. For mankind. Yeah, I'm, I'm eventually going to start my own civilization. <laughs> a superior civilization. Someone tried, was, someone tried inferior, that once, by the way. Yeah, an inferior civilization, right. A little audio asterisk here. The views presented in this podcast are those of the individuals recorded on the interview and not those of Deutsch Inc. So, now you know that.